0: Well, we're working our way through 1 Peter in the series that I've titled Surviving the Storm. And as we've done so, we've pointed out a recurring theme that Peter has here. Over and over, he says, this is what God has done for you. This is who you have become because of that. And because of that, or therefore, this is how you live, live like it. In this section that we've been in the last few weeks, he's been saying, you are a part of a royal priesthood, you're sons and daughters of the king. You've been adopted into royalty. You're priests with full-on access to God. All the rights, the privileges, and the responsibilities of one who represents God as we live our lives in this world. So therefore, he says, live such good lives among those who don't know God that they will glorify God on the day that he returns. Speaking there of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And then he talked about how we are to live as citizens, submitting to the government, even if it's an antagonistic government. And we've we've talked about that, about what it was in Peter's day. You had this evil emperor, Nero, who was persecuting Christians, killing Christians. And he says to live with respect even towards guys like that, serving in such a way that we keep getting promoted. Remember last week we looked at the examples of Joseph and the example of of Daniel in the Old Testament, that you get promoted and then you earn the right to be listened to, to have influence, if you will. Then Peter moved to the marketplace. Back then it was slaves and masters. Today we have masters, although we're not called slaves. Sometimes we might feel like slaves, eh? And he said, it's really the same thing, not because they deserve it, but because I have asked you to make me look good, is what God says. To earn the right to be heard, to win them over, because God says, I want to win them over, not wipe them out. Serve them, serve them so well that they promote you, whether they are considerate or they're harsh. Learn the biblical sense of submission for the glory of God. Today we come to a different subject, and 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 you'll note I'm going to say arranged marriages because over the history of our world, up until a couple centuries ago, most marriages were arranged. You didn't really have much of a say-so in who it was you married. Arranged marriages in particular in which one party was a believer and the other wasn't is what Peter's going to talk about here. And once again, he comes back to the same thing. As a believer priest, representing God in this marriage, treat your wife with respect. Treat your husband with respect. Take your spouse, serve them, submit to them, not because they necessarily deserve how you're treating them, but because God has asked you to. He asks you to do so in light of who you've become, a royal priesthood, one who is representing him. So I want to take a deep dive this morning into 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, a passage on marriage. We're going to read the passage, I'm going to point out a few things, and then we're going to step back and look at it and see what does this mean in real life today in the 21st century. Now last week after the first service, one of you came up to me and said, my granddaughter really needs to hear this. And that's the kind of thinking I like. Even if this doesn't apply directly to your situation, it can help you as you mentor, as you disciple, as you lead other people within your sphere of influence. So let's look at the passage here. He starts off, he says, wives. And I would encourage you, if you have a Bible with you, to circle wives there. Uh, I encourage you to use your Bible as a textbook, as a, as a living textbook for your life. And if you have your Bible, you can circle in your life, and circle wives, underline the next phrase there in the same way, and point up, or just put it, send an arrow upward. And that's because what he's saying is, wives, I'm going to give you some instructions here, some specific instructions, but they're under the same umbrella that I gave to those who are citizens of an antagonistic government, those who are working under a considerate or a harsh master. He says, wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands. Why? Because they deserve it? No, that's not why he's saying He says, so that... If any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they should see the purity and the reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves look beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Then he turns to the husbands. He says husbands, and again you might want to circle that word husbands, and then underline the next phrase and put an arrow pointing up again the same way that I asked you to earlier. The same way that wives are to do to their husbands, slaves are to do to their masters, and citizens to do their government, is the same way that husbands here. He describes it, he flushes it out. He says, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect. As the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers now I want to point out a couple things about this before we move to the application first of all it's quite clear that husbands and wives are both pointed back to the same thing that is this overarching principle of our relationships that strange calling that we talked about last week of not returning evil for evil but returning good for evil why because jesus asked us to and because that's what he did for us it's the model that he set for us for relationships now if this is god's instructions on how we're to do marriage in an arranged marriage where we had little to no input which is how marriage is said was historically done throughout the history of mankind If this is what he says you ought to do when you're stuck with somebody, not of your own choosing, imagine how much more these principles apply to us that made our own choice, that stood before God and others and made vows. I don't think there's anybody here in this room today that had to marry the person that you married. I don't think anybody twisted your arm here today. I do know that there's some people that I've talked to here whose grandparents They told me about a story about someone sending off for for a bride from from Poland. The first wife over here in the States died, and so they sent back and had another bride, and that bride came here not having any input in the fact that she was going to marry this guy's grandfather. Good that she did, so he's here now. And so, imagine how these principles apply to us since we do have a choice here. Now, I fully understand that some of us may not have been in our right minds when we made that choice. Some of us may have been led by hormones, or we may have been led by infatuation. Some of us may have been at a different place in our lives. Some of us weren't walking with the Lord. And there's all kinds of different things, but the bottom line is there's no excuse that we have that we can in any way make where our situation is tougher than these people before who were in these arranged marriages. You and I did make a choice. They had no choice. And Peter says, even then, this is how you live this thing called marriage out. Now to the wives, he says, he says, I want you to notice in both cases, it's probably a non-believer because in his words to the husbands, he ends and he says so that nothing can hinder your prayers. But to the wives, he says, so that they may be won over without a word. And this is a very important concept, and it goes both ways. It aims this passage at at, at the wives, because in that culture, if a husband became a believer, at least in name, the wife and the entire household would become believers. That's just how the culture worked in that time. But if the wife became a believer, she had to, as it were, win her husband over. It was nowhere near the kind of culture that we have today. So today we live in a world where believing husbands are married to non-believing wives, unknown pretty much in that day, and we have a world in which wives are married to unbelieving husbands. In each case, it's to be won over without a word by the behavior of the spouse. I'd like to use a word picture here for you of of music, music and words to illustrate this. Have you ever noticed the power that music has for you? The power that music has with lyrics think about your favorite songs what do you notice first do you notice the music or the lyrics most of us will probably notice the music first we hear something come on we don't in fact there's sometimes there's songs i really like and and, and i like the tune and catch it's a catchy tune and all but like that but then whenever i read the lyrics I'm like, man that's a garbage song i don't really care about that and and you know but i like the tune i like the music that goes with it it's that's kind of an illustration here you know, the tune draws you in. The tune brings, brings your attention to, to, the, to the song. But sometimes the song has goofier or weird lyrics. And the same thing happens if you put the, the most beautiful uh, of words in, the most convictive words around garbage music. Nothing, nothing will happen. If the tune doesn't catch you, you, you just go to the next song. You flip the station or whatever, or change your, your CD or whatever it is you're listening to. And that's a picture of how you and I reach people for Jesus in our, in our family, in our world, and in the workplace. The music is actually more important than the words. The most important is the music, your character, your lifestyle, your behavior, how you live. That will catch their attention, and then they can hear the words. And I've seen it over and over again, people who surround their lives with with godly music, in other words, godly behavior, Christ-like behavior. They treat people the way that Jesus treated people. And they have far more impact than those who may have all of their theology together. They may have all the right words, but they don't live their lives in a way that draws people towards Christ. This goes along with one of my favorite quotes that's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, who says, preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. Doesn't that make sense? That's where Peter's referring to here. It's a principle that every one of us can take into any relationship, not just a marriage relationship, but any relationship we have with people that we love and we care for who don't necessarily know Jesus. Now let's continue with the application of what Peter says to wives and then to husbands. He says, wives, in the same way, submit just like you do as citizens to a godless government, As slaves do to master, show respect, serve them well, return good for evil. And I want to flesh that out in two particular areas here. The first is biblical submission, and the second, I want to talk about inner beauty. Let's first look at biblical submission. What in the world does this mean? Well, we've all probably heard messages on this, and we've probably heard messages that aren't necessarily what it means in what the Bible's trying to teach here. We've looked at submission already in terms of what the government, uh, what we do with governments, what we do in the workplace, and so I don't want to repeat what we've gone over the past few weeks, but I want to build on it with a couple of things to look at it or clarify it in light of marriage. And the first thing is, would you agree that the idea of a wife submitting to a husband, would you agree that's not necessarily politically correct today? Well, the problem is that I can't worry or I can't measure what I say when I'm up here by political correctness. I have to go by what the Word of God says. And the Word of God is, is, is very clear on this. He says, wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husband. And then in verse 5, he says, for this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands. Twice there, within a few verses, it says it in the Word of God. It's echoed in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now notice again, and all throughout Scripture, we've been seeing the workplace and government and now in marriage. It's not because they deserve it. He says, wives, submit to your husband as is fitting to the Lord or in the Lord because of who you've become and what he's asked you to do for his sake. The principle is again found in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. The same principle we've been seeing over and over and over in all these relationships. We don't do it because they deserve it. We do it because Jesus asked us to. These are his instructions. So under biblical submission, there's this idea and there's no way around it that we do it for him, not because it's earned. But I also want to take a minute to talk to you about what I'm going to call submissions fine print. Because those of you that are in business, you know that if you read a contract, you can't just read one clause of the contract. You can't just read one one paragraph or even one page of the contract. You've got to read the entire contract or else you're going to get messed up in a big way. Why? Because the whole contract goes together. And so you read page one, and then you read on page three, Say, okay, this clarifies what was said on page one. Well, when it comes to submission, Yes, it says submit, and yes, submit means to put the needs and interests of others first. And yes, it means to do what they ask you to do. But these things are expounded upon by the stories and the principles that are taught in the Bible, which clarifies and shows us that there are some boundaries here. And that's what I'm referring to as the fine print. There's two things in particular that you need to jot down. Hopefully you have your life notes, you have something to write with. When it comes to biblical submission, it is mutual submission. It is mutual submission. In Ephesians chapter 5, I just read verse 22 a moment ago, and that's the verse that a uh, a lot of pastors, a lot of preachers will use to tell the wives, submit to your husband, submit to your husband, submit to your husband, but they fail to go back to verse 21 where it says, submit to whom? To one another. Why? Out of reverence for Christ. Not because people deserve it, And it's the same pattern over and over again. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That comes before wives submit yourselves to your husbands in the Lord. The whole concept, unfortunately, isn't always taught. But there's no getting around it. Wives are called to submit to the husbands. But also husbands, single men, we're called to submit to one another. It's absolutely clear in our relationships we submit to one another. And you may say, well, what does that look like? Well, I think probably one of the best places to see what it looks like is found in one of my favorite passages in Scripture. It comes from Philippians, the second chapter, where it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now, what does nothing mean? It means nothing. It says do nothing. It means everything. This is a governing principle for believers that Paul's giving us here in Philippians. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you, is there anybody excluded there? There's no believer that's excluded here. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then there in Philippians 2, there's this beautiful hymn that we believe comes from the early church about Jesus, about how he lowered himself to come and serve and to give his life for all of us for sin. Now, this is a command this is a command for all of us. It's a command that I take in my relationship with my children, with my co-workers, with my neighbors, and with Lou, my spouse. It's a command that she takes into all of her relationships as, as well, doing nothing out of selfishness, nothing out of vain conceit, trying to impress others with humility of mind, considering the needs, the interests of others as more important than our own. That's what mutual submission looks like. The second thing is this, submission is not blind or absolute. Biblical submission is not blind or absolute. We saw last week that if you're asked to do something which is immoral or illegal, what is the answer? No, no, you're not bound there. You look for a creative alternative, and if that's not there, you accept the consequences, but you don't do the wrong thing. You don't do something that's immoral or illegal. Also, we're not called to accept abuse. We're not called to to blind obedience and and being abused. Biblical submission doesn't mean come here and, and hit me again. Biblical submission doesn't mean that you have to take whatever physical, verbal, or emotionally abuse that's being heaped upon you. Now, I do need to say this because we've kind of swung the pendulum from accepting abuse to hypersensitivity like snowflakes, if you're familiar with the with the term snowflake. A snowflake's a very fragile thing. You touch a snowflake, what happens? It melts. And, we, and we've kind of swung it to where, where people say, oh, it's an abusive relationship. And oftentimes when I'm counseling and I, and I press into and it and I, and I ask about it, I say, no, it's not an abusive relationship. It's just a bad relationship. Well, he's not nice to me. Really? Well, he doesn't look at me the way that, that he used to when he, when he talks to me. He doesn't look to me when he talks to me. That's not abuse. That's he's just being a jerk. Okay, don't call it abusive, just call him a jerk. Well, she's not always kind. She's not always kind or thoughtful. Well, she should be, but that's not abusive. And we've made it so easy in our society to get divorced. You don't even need a reason anymore to get divorced in our country, unfortunately. But you've got to be careful that you don't put the things under abuse that aren't necessarily abuse. Now, physical abuse is unacceptable. Let me be very clear about that. There's a time and a place to say no, just like we talked last week about the slavery situation. And if you can step outside of that, you need to get away from away from physical abuse. You need to get the attention. You need to set up boundaries in that regard. Well, I want to read you a story from 1 Samuel chapter 25. You see, the Bible has both commands that are explicit and then it has stories like Peter's referring to here. He's referring to a story about Sarah and Abraham and in that story, Sarah's lifted up as a godly woman. But I want to share this story about a godly woman that's found in, in 1 Samuel 25. The woman's name is Abigail, and she was married to a man named Nabal. And his name literally means fool. You know, how would you like to have that as your name going around? You're, hey, fool! You know, <laughs> not necessarily cool. But I encourage you, to, I'm not going to read the whole story. I'm going to tell it, sort of read parts and tell it this morning. But I encourage you to read the story in 1 Samuel 25 this week see, King David had already been anointed king, but he's not yet in the role of king. The current king is this guy named Saul. And you'll probably remember that Saul had these fits of anger, and he's trying to hunt David down, he's trying to kill David, and he's pursuing David. Well, David has gathered around him 600 fighting men that are traveling with him, running away from Saul. And they're camping out in the the valleys, and and they're near this guy named Nabal where his herds are. And Nabal has 1,000 goats, and 3,000 sheep. Now, I'm not a farmer. Some of you farmers here may be uh, may be impressed, but I'm impressed by it. Like 3,000 sheep seems to me like a heap bunch of sheep there, but they're out there, and during this time, they don't touch a single animal of Nabal's. They got to remember, David's got 600 guys with him. He has to feed these guys. He has to make sure he's taking care of them. When you're in charge of a group of, of men or, or women, a group of people, you've got a, a huge logistics problem there but they don't t- touch anything that belongs to Nabal. They, they act as protection, protecting Nabal's flocks some other people that would come and, and pillage his flocks. And so it comes to sheep shearing season. And sheep shearing season is a, is a time where there's festivities because this is payday, okay? This is when you, you reap what you've, uh, what you've sown there, you shear the sheep, you sell the wool, and you're going to have a big payday. And So it's sheep shearing season. And David sends a messenger to Nabal. He says, hey, by the way, He's very respectful. If you read in, in, in scripture, he's very respectful in the way that he, his, his messengers approach Nabal. He says, Can you spare something for us? Can you help us out with some food, some provisions? Now, in that culture, in that culture, there's only one correct answer on Nabal's part. Because all the rules of hospitality, how have you been to the Middle East? In the Middle East, hospitality is extremely important. When you read these stories, when you read stuff in the Bible, you need to understand them against that backdrop of that culture. It's still true to this day. Hospitality is there. The only correct answer for Nabal is, sure, what you need. What can I do for you? And so you and I in our Western culture, here is a request, but it was a request that in that culture had nothing but a yes that should be answered. Well, let me pick up the story here in verse 10. Here's how Nabal responded to the messengers of David. Nabal answered David's servants and he said, who is this David? Now, if you read the backstory in 1 Samuel, you'll know that Nabal had to have already known who David was. He's being a fool, like his name says. Who is this son of Jesse? Oh, well, he knows, he knows David's daddy, so of course he knows David. Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men coming from who knows where? So David's men turn around and they go back and they report back to David every word that Nabal said and how he treated them. And David said, okay, guys, strap on your swords. We're going to go take care of this fool. And so David leaves 200 men with the provisions, and he takes 400 men, and he's going to go down, and he is intent on, as the scripture says, on wiping out every male of Nabal's household. He was just going to go down, and every male, he was going to, he was going to kill them. Now, 400 men going down to do that, would you agree that's a pretty big posse? I mean, I wouldn't want to see 400 guys coming, coming here. Well, one of Nabal's servants goes and tells Nabal's wife, Abigail, what's going down. And he says, he says, David sent messengers and from the wilderness to give our master greetings. They were very respectful, but our master heard ins, hurled insults back at them. Uh, these guys were good to us, ma'am. They were. They didn't mistreat us. They made sure that nothing was missing from our flocks out there. It was like there was a wall of protection around us. And he goes on and he says to Abigail, he says, think it over and see what you can do because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He's such a wicked man and none of us, no one can talk to him. And so the the, the servant is trying to get Abigail to, to intercede here. Well, Abigail acts quickly. She doesn't go to her husband, probably because she knows that he's a fool and isn't going to listen to her. But she takes 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, nine gallons of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisins and 200 cakes of pressed figs. And she loads them up on donkeys and she tells her servants, go ahead, head towards David. Take this, I will follow along. But she didn't tell her husband. Well, the story continues, and and she comes up to David. David's coming down the down the mountain towards her, and he's, again, he's loaded for bear. He's, he's come getting ready to come down and, and kick butt and take names and kill people. And as she comes up to David, she gets off of her donkey, and she bows down before him. And what you see here is not exactly a mousy response. She says in verse 25, May my Lord pay no attention to that wicked fool Nabal. He is just like his name. His name is fool and folly follows him. But as for me, your servant, I did not see the men that my master sent. She said, I wish I'd seen those those guys you sent. You know, Surely we'll help you out. Now since the Lord has kept you, my master, from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, may your enemies and all who intend to harm my master be like Nabal. And let the gift which your servant has brought to my master be given to the men who follow you. In other words, take this stuff. Please spare the families. Please spare my fool of a husband. And so they did. David spared him. And the story picks up with in verse 36, because later that night, Abigail returns home. And it says, when Abigail went to Nabal, he was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. He was in high spirits and very drunk. So she told him nothing until daybreak. Then in the morning when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things and his heart failed him and he became like a stone. The guy had a stroke. And then it continues in verse 38, about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. David didn't have to take him out. God took him out. Now, you can read the rest of the story, and you'll find out that Abigail does become one of David's wives, so there's another aspect of the story there, too. Now, why is this story in here? I'll tell you one of the reasons that it's in here is to help us understand the nuances of life and the nuances of the commands here. Abigail is put forth as a godly woman. Her husband's a fool. His name means fool. She calls him a fool. Her husband said, there's no way I'm going to share the stuff. And without telling him, she goes and she figures out a way to save the whole household. She even saved her husband. It's the Lord that took him out, not not David. And it's submission with boundaries here. And this was this was a serious situation, wouldn't you agree? 400 guys getting ready to come down and and, and clean them out. Now, the, this is not a freedom. This doesn't mean wives that you have freedom to trash talk your 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 husband to your to your friends, okay? But it does put some of the nuances of submission into this thing. It's not blind. It's not absolute. Peter goes on here and he talks about inner beauty. I want you to see this in the passage. Verse 3. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of the inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Now, at times... This passage has been been mistakenly read, mistakenly taught with a few other passages in the Bible to basically say that Christian women, you ought to look frumpy. You can go look it up if you don't know what it means, but frumpy, it's it's a good, good word here. That's not what the passage says. He's saying, don't be known for your outer beauty, be known for your inner beauty. Inner beauty is much more important than outer beauty. What does our society say? Society is all about the outer beauty. It's all about the appearance. He's saying if your body beautiful and everything's all decked out, but the, but the inside is empty, he's saying you'll never have any influence that way. But he's not saying, look frumpy. As one pastor once said that I heard, he said it's okay to put a little paint on the old barn once in a while. Now I've got some other verses here that shed light on this, and I've listed these verses in your life notes. One is Proverbs 11.22. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. I don't know about you, but I've met that woman more than once, okay? And it's like a double take. Everything is, is all together, in the clothing and, and the jewelry and the outward appearance, but the way she carries herself, her, her, her conversation, you just realize it's, it's like a gold ring in a pig's snout, as, as Proverbs says. As I said, our our, our culture overplays the importance of the physical, the outward appearance. And in doing so, we oftentimes miss the person. Look at 1 Timothy 4.8 up here with me. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. He's not saying don't take care of your body. He's just saying don't neglect your spirit while you're taking care of your body. Because it doesn't matter how much you work out or what you look like. When you go to be with the Lord, you don't take all of that with you. It's who you are, your character that lasts forever. But here's the key passage. I, I read the, the entire long passage before the service in Proverbs 31. As I said, it's written by Solomon. It's the word of God. And it tells us what the ideal wife is like. And I'd like to, I'd like to look at some highlights of this and, and look at this and apply it here. The ideal wife, as we said in, in verse 10, he says, A wife of noble character, who can find? She's worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. And then here's what you find. You, you might be writing down here, you know, she's a hard worker, she's not idle. He goes on and talks about the hard work that she does. It talks about her getting up in, in the, in, while it's still night, before the sun comes up, providing food for her family, portions for her servants, and just basically being a hard worker. But this then it gets important. In, in verse 16, he says, "She's independent." She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for the task. You know this lady is one independent gal. She's got a real estate license, she's buying and selling, she's bought a vineyard in Napa, she's, she's planted grapes. She's not a, a little mousy thing, you know, just, just sitting back waiting for her husband to tell her what to do with all kinds of tight control. But she doesn't neglect her physical appearance either in verse 22. She makes coverings for her bed, she is clothed in fine linen and purple. Now, those were the most expensive clothes of the day. And, and I think linen, I don't buy linen, but I think they're pretty expensive today as well. You know, It's kind of bizarre. You, you pay all this money for something that two minutes after you put it on is all wrinkled. In that day and age, anything purple that was a royal color, that indicated that it was expensive. And so she's styling. Even though she's doing all these other things, she does look good. She's styling even though she's a submissive, godly woman. She also gives great advice and leadership to her home, it says. She doesn't just submit and obey and sit there waiting for command. She speaks into the relationship, we're told, with incredible wisdom. It says in verse 26, she speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. And women, that is what God has called wives to be. In the same way to submit to the husband, to, to put their needs and interests is more important than your own and all these things, but to understand the nuances of it, understand the fine print of it. It's not that the wife becomes nothing. In the Bible it says that you should leave and cleave, and the two shall become one flesh. And unfortunately in many marriages it's, it looks like it's a, it's a battle about which one they're going to become. When two become one, it's not a matter of which one, it's supposed to be a new one where the input and the strengths of each one go together to create something new. Now, considering the next verse in 1 Peter and the time, some of you men are probably hoping that I would run out of time, but I didn't. So we're going to go on and continue with verse 7 here. And it begins, it says, husbands in the same way. So what's that referring to in the same way? All this stuff that's been going on for the past chapter and a half in 1 Peter He's referring to to with respect to wives, with respect to the government, our relationship with the government and with respect to uh, to a workplace. He says, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Now, there's four things I believe that we as husbands are are called to do out of this simple verse Number one, we are called to understand her. We're called to understand her. Now, they're told that in an arranged marriage. In the one that you and I picked, husbands, we're told that as well. If you look at verse 7, depending on the translation that you may have, husbands in the same way be considered as you live with your wives, it's an okay translation as far as getting the idea, but it's not not a word-for-word literal translation of the Greek that's there. In the passage, as it was originally written, a literal translation would be husbands in the same way, live with her according to knowledge. Live with her according to knowledge. The Greek word that's used there is this this word gnosis, the word knowledge. In other words, husbands, become a student of your wife. Learn about her, understand her. That's God's calling as you study her, you adapt to her strengths and weaknesses. My calling is to be a student of Lou. And then as I understand who she is, to adapt to her uniqueness. Everybody has ways that they prefer to express love, and people have ways that they prefer to to receive love. Those are called love languages, and I would strongly recommend Gary Chapman's book, The Five Love Languages. I've thought about doing a sermon series on them. I may do that sometime here. The five love languages will help you to understand this. Chapman says that love can be expressed in the following five ways. It can be expressed with words of affirmation, with quality time. It can be expressed with acts of service, with gifts, and by touch. Most people have a primary and a secondary love language. It's a language in which they prefer to extend love, and they have a primary or secondary love language in which they prefer to have love expressed towards them. The key in a marriage is to understand one another and to match them up. And all the ladies are sitting out there thinking, oh, well, guys, every guy's primary or secondary has to be touched. Well, that's not necessarily the women's, guys, so just keep that in mind. When Lou and I first got married, I brought her flowers every payday. And it wasn't long before we both realized the flowers had more of an effect on her friends than they did on her. You see, her friends would come over, and they would see the flowers and say, wow, where'd you get the flowers? Well, Walt brought them to me. And they'd tell her what a great husband she had, and they were right, okay? But the, the, problem is, the problem is gifts is not my wife's primary nor her secondary love language. Her primary and secondary love language is quality time and acts of service. And guys, I'm blessed with a wife who is not a shopaholic. In fact, I have to convince her to allow me to buy her something, like the, the purse that I bought her in Texas last summer that she took up to Lake Arrowhead with us this week. I know these things because over the past 43-plus years, I've, I've learned what makes her tick as a unique individual created by God. And I'm a fortunate guy because if you were to type into your, your Google and put down low-maintenance wife, my wife's picture would, would come up on, on the search. Some of you put in high-maintenance wife, and, and your spouse may come up. Well, if, if it does, then you know, figure her out and maintain her well. But Peter is saying, husbands, it's your job. If you don't want your prayers to be hindered, it's your job. If you want your marriage to to be like God has called you to do, be a student of your wife, understand her, and adapt to her. Now, the second thing is protect her. Protect her. Live with your wives according to knowledge or be considerate. And again, that's an okay translation. It just kind of misses some of the nuances there because he then points out, he says uses the term weaker partner, the Greek word here in the, in the original is actually weaker vessel. It's weaker vessel. And he doesn't mean that you wives are weaker emotionally or anything. Like that. He's basically talking about just it's a physical fact that most, in most cases, the male is, is the stronger physically. And so we need to protect our wives. Now, I realize there are some wives that could take down their husbands. I've seen some of those women. But the general tenor of, of life is that the husband's usually the physically stronger of the two in this very physical agrarian society that they they were in, he says, husbands, live with your wives according to knowledge, and in that, make sure that you protect her as the weaker physical vessel. That's your calling, that's your job. The third thing he says here is respect her. Why? As a joint heir, as a joint heir with you of the gracious gift of life. A joint heir, together, together you have the, that have, have have that eternal life to come you're to respect your wife as an equal god looked at adam and he said it's not good for the man to be alone I, I, I will make a helper suitable for him and the concept there is a completer where the two become one not a slave not a not a gal friday not an employee but to respect her genesis 1:27 says so god created man in his own image in the image of god he created him Male and female, he created them. In Genesis 2, it talks about a suitable helper, a completer, two becoming one. And in Galatians 3.28, all these verses, uh, I've got the references listed in your life notes, it says, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female in the body of Christ. We're all one in the body of Christ. And if you don't treat your wife as that kind of co-equal with respect, Peter's saying your prayers will be hindered and you're being disobedient to God. So understand her, protect her, respect her, and finally serve her. It's the essence of something called biblical headship. The Bible does say, we've seen in verses, wives submit, and by the way, the Bible also says the husband is the head of the home. Now again, where, where I grew up, that meant you were lucky if you had the right plumbing. Let that sink in for a minute. I'm not talking about the house, okay? You were lucky if you had the right plumbing, because if you had the right plumbing, you got to make all the decisions. You got to decide where to live, you got to decide what color to, to paint the house, whether or not to buy what car, and all that kind of stuff, where to go on vacation. Well, the problem is that's how headship works in the world, but that is not how headship works in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, it's completely different i want to read a few verses to you then. I'm going to flush out what this looks like. First off, headship and submission isn't a superior, inferior relationship. The father is the head of the son, Jesus Christ. Does that mean that Jesus is inferior to the father? No, but it does say in the scripture that the the father is the head of the son. Ephesians 5.23 says this, For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. The church, the church that he died for, not the church that that he created to serve him, but the church that he gave his life for. First Corinthians eleven three. Now, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. First Corinthians 15. When he has done this, then the son himself will be made subject to him. This is God, the father who put everything under him, the son, so that God may be all in all. It's not a superior-inferior relationship. It's not an excuse for self-centered living because remember Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Be like Jesus. We need to keep in mind the headship of our Lord over all of us. And husbands, this is the kind of headship that we're supposed to have over our wives. It's Jesus speaking. He said in Matthew 20, 28, he said, the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you recall in John chapter 13, Jesus took a towel and he washed the feet of his disciples there, including Judas, who was getting ready to betray him. And Jesus said, I'm your teacher. Do the same for one another. Now, Ephesians 5 again, in verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives. How? just as Christ loved the church. And what did he do for the church? And gave himself up for her. Now, this isn't always stressed, guys. This isn't always taught. Oftentimes, it's taught like it's some kind of chain of command and the husband's at the top of the food chain, but that's not the Jesus model. The Jesus model in our church and in our our families is that leaders serve, leaders lift up. And I tell you, if we would simply follow God's instructions in marriage, it would be so amazing. It would change society. It would change our culture. Who would, who would not want to submit to a head that is serving, that is protecting, that is understanding? And who would not want to serve one who, who puts your needs and your interests first? The goal of the Lord, the goal of marriage, is that marriage should be a model for the world. Christian marriage models the Lord's love and the Lord's relationship with us. And if we did these things we talked about today, it would change things. Not because someone deserves the respect, not because someone deserves to be served, but because Jesus asks us to. An arranged marriage, our chosen marriage, a slave or an employee, a citizen of an incredibly corrupt government or a citizen of a good government. It's always the same thing. We live not for ourselves, not even for others. We live for him. And follow him as we serve as he served. And everything changes for the glory of God. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at sv. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day.